0: So thank you for the clock. Thank you for everything else. And let me tell you, I am really excited about today. And the reason why is because God saved my butt. (laughs) Now what I mean by that is this. A couple of months ago, I felt like God said, do a series on baptism before Church of the Beach, which is where we do our, that's our primary baptism moment in this church per year. And it's awesome, it's down at Luther Burbank, it's out in Lake Washington, it's a really great atmosphere for a baptism, it's the right public, it's the right everything, it's just awesome, okay? But I felt like God was telling me, do a series, two full sermons, and then that short sermon on that day, on baptism, do a full run on it. And and honestly, I kinda went, I don't think there's enough material for that. (laughs) I was like, I don't, yeah, sorry, thank you for that, Tammy. But, but now, now, please understand, I'm smart enough to know that if what I wanted to do was give you a history or a full overview of how everybody in the body of Christ views it, we could be here for months, okay? This is one of those issues that is contentious, okay? Literally, you have denominations forming over whether you should sprinkle or immerse, whether you should baptize in a certain name or the three names, whether you should, whether the, you know, all of this stuff happens, and it goes on and on. Think about it for a second. There is a denomination in Protestantism that's called Baptist. You do not name your denomination Baptist if, A, you don't care about it a lot, (laughs) and, B, you don't think everybody else is doing it wrong. (laughs) Okay? So that's what that's about, okay? This was that big of a deal to them that they created a whole new denomination about how to do this thing properly, and they have a very highly developed theology about all of that stuff. So this is, like I say, if I went through all the history of it, from Catholic all the way to the various ways of doing it in the Protestant field, you would find lots of material, But, but I thought... You know, we're, you know, we come from different traditions and everything, but we're a charismatic church. And, and I kind of figured everybody kind of, you know, was on the same page. Can I just, can I just once again tell you how beautiful you guys are? I, I really mean that. That's the right word. When I was writing this and when I was thinking about it, what I thought to myself was, is, this is such a beautiful body of people. You guys are so thoughtful you're so careful. You're so good about examining and, and questioning and, and commenting and bringing these things in a way that rounded them out in a way that I just went. The Dugans are here. This is great. Congratulations on your baby. Okay. Week and a half. So oh, you've got to remind me. I want to see. Okay. All right. I'll try, I'll try my best not to throw them in there. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So, but, but, I don't know where I am anymore, Uh, but, but what I want to, where am I? Help me. Good about asking questions. Good about asking questions. So all of a sudden, when I started reading these, all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh. I went, there is, there is so much depth in here, but now watch. This is the cool thing. As I started answering those questions and researching them and looking at them myself and re-examining what I've always thought and believed, when you know it, the Lord started speaking to me about something I didn't quite understand about it. And that's why I'm really excited about this today. Because when he told me to do this, what I felt like he was saying saying to me was, people don't really understand what this is, and I want you to make it clear. I didn't know I was amongst those people. (laughs) (laughs) But he said, I want to bring this home I want to make this richer. I want to get this deeper. I want people to experience something different than what they're thinking it is. I want them to think a different way so that they can experience it in a different way. So I'm just telling you, this is an important sermon. I really think the Lord is the one pushing the button. I'm really excited to go into it. Who's our prayer today. Oh, this is perfect. Spencer Chin. You know, I was going to say at the beginning of the sermon, you have to talk to me about what it is you're going to do here this summer, because I want you doing some sort of ministry. This is one of our outstanding graduates from before who's now just rocking the world and is going to change the world. So would you please pray for the sermon? Would you lift up another church while you're doing it? Dear Lord, uh, just thank you for this day. Uh, Thank you that we get together here uh, in your presence, Lord. I pray for Kurt's sermon um, about this important um, piece of our Christian life, uh, that is baptism, Lord. And I just pray that you would speak through Kurt um, to give us that better understanding um, of what what baptism is, God. Thank you. Um, and Lord, I, I lift up uh, New Life Community Church uh, in San Jose, um, that you would keep speaking uh, the word um, and your truth through them, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, can we get the clock going? Thanks. All right. So, uh, in or- first of all, I just want to say this. There have been a lot of questions that have come in to me already. Thank you for responses. There are going to be more, okay? So, if you have a question during the sermon, text 478Baptize. Or 478-227-8495. You just text that and then ask the question, it's gonna get to me. You can also just email off your smartphone, office at lakesam.org, or at any other time. You can email or text those in, and I'll be collecting these and continuing to make sure that these get dealt with prior to, to the best of my ability. Okay? So I want you to do that. Now, whenever you have a contentious issue in Christianity, something that takes something that has been debated for hundreds of years and not resolved. Some things get debated for hundreds of years but eventually they resolve. Okay? For example, God is three in one. It took us quite a while to figure out how to how to get that right theologically, but eventually we did. And now there's general agreement about that in the Christian faith, okay? But sometimes there's an argument that just keeps going on and on. Predestination, free will. Certainly have not resolved that, right? In a sense. It's not like everybody believes one thing. There's still contention in scriptures and so on being pulled into support of various things. Whenever you have that, it's my experience that you have, not every single time, but most of the time, you have one of two issues going on. The first one we talk about a lot, so I'm not spending any time on it today, and that's you have a paradox. A paradox is two things which are seemingly untrue to us in our limited sphere of understanding. But that when you get to the transcendent aspect of God, when you get to a deeper level, it resolves. Example, God is three and one. What we have done with that as a theology is we've understood it now to be a paradox. It doesn't, you can't be three and one. It's not possible in our limited way of thinking about it. But interestingly, when you get into the spiritual dimension, it completely resolves. So too does Jesus Christ being fully 100% man and fully 100% God. And those, that, these are two that we've resolved as paradoxes and understand it to be paradoxes. Predestination is one that we have not agreed to it being a paradox. I believe it is. okay, And that's why I always present it that way. But bottom line, there you go. There's one that hasn't been resolved yet. So there is the paradox thing, but let me take you to another place. Because this is the one that's going to help us understand what baptism is. And this is what we can call, just for, there's lots of ways we can do this, but Platonic versus Aristotelian. Platonic, Plato. Aristotelian, Aristotle. Aristotle was Plato's student, his most well-known student. And here's the point. There's an impulse in the way that they understand knowledge itself that is at exact odds with one another. That's not exactly exact, but I've got to be simple enough to where I don't just lose everybody, okay? So the bottom line is, is here's Platonic, Okay? A platonic, it's a humble movement to try and understand as best as possible what is ultimately unknowable because it's transcendent and beyond us. It's admitting that there's something else in life that isn't just these four dimensions. It exists, it's real. We can't perceive it directly. One of the analogies that he used, his most famous one, would be a shadow on a wall. You're looking this way, there's a brightness behind you which you cannot see, but as it comes through life, it casts shadows on a wall, and you can learn things about what's behind and beyond, transcendent, by looking at the shadow it's casting. That's the analogy that he uses. And so now, here's the key to it. When you talk about language, when you talk about metaphor, when you talk about analogies, when you talk about anything, in a platonic impulse, what you're doing is you're saying, Ultimately, all language, all analogies, all metaphors, all everything is insufficient to truly capture in fullness the truth. It ultimately will still be beyond us. So it's a humble attempt to learn as much as you can. You see that? There's more to it, and I'm going to do everything I can to get to that, but I understand that in the end, I'm not going to get to it fully. So it's always in a state of there's something more, right? Right? Now, Aristotelian is the exact opposite movement. One is going up, one is essentially going down. Aristotelian is the Western scientific attempt. He is the father of Western scientific understanding. It's an attempt to understand everything in fullness by reducing it down to its most fundamental essential aspects. In other words, What we do is we take a certain thing and we break it down and break it down and break it down and break it down. And pretty soon, at some point in time, we'll get to the most essential elements of what that thing is. And when we get there, we can then build it back up and understand it completely. See how different that is than Plato? Plato's saying you're not ever going to understand it completely. Aristotle's saying if you can just get down deep enough... You're going to, and he understands that maybe it's going to take some new science or some new whatever in order to get down to where you understand it more fundamentally. Now, understand something. Both of these impulses are important. They're critical. But do understand something. People don't actually do that. (laughs) The Western world is built essentially on an Aristotelian mindset. Science, cause and effect, break it down, find the smallest atom and you can figure everything out. Find the smallest piece of an atom, see what I mean? So that's the impulse that most of us in this room are very much under. The other impulse is the non-Western world, most of it. Think about it this way, about half of the people alive today do left to right writing. Left-to-right writing always has, I'm going, to say, I'm going to say, there's probably some example of it not having this somewhere out there somewhere, but as a rule of thumb, right to, left-to-right writing like we read in our books, it always has vowels so that every word has you know, different vowels, different consonants, make different words, and sentence structure is critically important to what is being said, to, to meaning. Now, we hear that and we say, well, of course it is. Of course you got to have vowels. And of course you got to have sentence structure. Well, you realize that half the world doesn't have vowels and doesn't have sentence structure. Now, that's not entirely true the way I said it. But the bottom line is, is when you go to Hebrew, which, by the way, is the milieu of the Bible. It's not Western. It's Hebraic. And Hebraic goes right to left which is to say kind of right mind, creative, it's that holistic, it's that bigger sense of things. When you go this way, most of them do not have vowel points. Some do, but most of them don't. And sentence order rarely, if ever, is actually critical to meaning. Now you say, how can that be? Well, when when Yoda talks, do you understand what he says? But now he doesn't say it right, right? So it turns out sentence structure is not actually critical because Yoda talks in sentence structure that isn't ours, right? We don't like the way he diagrams his sentence, okay? Not only that, have you ever done one of those Facebook memes where you see a whole bunch of words with no spaces and you have no trouble reading it? Have you ever done one of them where there's no vowels? You're reading words with no vowels? It's actually incredibly easy. It doesn't take, it, it's totally natural. Now, it's so shocking to us. We're like, how can that be? Because we've got this sort of, you know, detail-oriented thing going on. Are you catching the metaphor here? Let me show you how it actually plays out. Paul says there's nine gifts of the Spirit. Okay? He said, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, miracles, healings, discerning of spirits, um, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation. So nine gifts of spirit. Now, here's how Aristotle handles that, and here's how Western theologians handle that since they're a product of Western scientific reductionistic thinking. There's nine gifts. How do I do that? There's nine gifts. (laughs) I'm so smart, I can't add on my fingers. There's nine gifts. Now, watch. Western mindset, only nine. And if you want to understand the nine, you have to carefully study what each one is and you have to reduce it down to its essence and in particular how it differs from the other one because this cannot be that. This is a distinct gift and this is a distinct gift and so on for all nine. That's the Aristotelian way of handling that scripture. But let me tell you, and I think there's nothing wrong with the exercise in us that says I want to understand what each one of those things Paul mentioned is. We have to do an Aristotelian thing. We have to, to understand it more carefully and more nearly. But I think that we go too far. Because what we end up doing is making it exclusionary. And that's where you blow out of a Hebraic mindset. Because what Paul, in my opinion, was really doing was this. You know the gifts of the Spirit that manifest people. You know the stuff that happens in our churches. You know words of wisdom and words of knowledge and, and faith and miracles and healings and distinguishing of the Spirit and prophecies and tongues and interpretation. See what he's doing? He's going like this. He's going, this is the spectrum of the kinds of things the Holy Spirit does. And, and it would be foreign to his mindset to think that you would make a fine distinction between a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge. You can make a distinction, and he's making a distinction. He's, but, but there's an overlap. There's play in it. See what I mean? It's not like, that's, just, that's not a word of wisdom. And Why did you call it a word of wisdom? You know what I mean? He would be going, I don't care what you call it. It wasn't God's word. See, he's trying to capture this. So are we tracking right now? Because if we're going to understand baptism... We're going to have to go, if we're going to understand baptism properly, we're going to have to go from a Western reductionistic thinking, even though we should be doing some of that, a lot of that, we're going to have to go from that to a Hebraic understanding that is a different posture to what this thing is. Do you get it? Are we all on the same page here? Okay, so with that, I am now going to show you just one of the emails that came to me. And I'm picking this particular one because, very, co- very coolly, it literally covers every question that all the other emails had in one email. So let me show you this, okay? And it doesn't just cover the issues, it covers the heart. Watch this. Oh, by the way, sorry. In essentials, unity. and non-essentials, liberty. and all things, charity. Always understand something. There are essentials that we're going to have differences about that have to do with the Christian faith. If you don't believe in the Trinity, it's not Christian. If you don't believe Jesus is God, it's not Christian. Right? There's a difference there. So in essentials, unity. We're going to agree on essentials. In non-essentials, liberty. There's, There's room for belief about what baptism is. It's not going to change whether you get into heaven. There's denominations that say it will, but thankfully it won't. Okay? In all things, love, graciousness, honoring, an attempt to understand where that person is coming from and to give, bring out of that the truth that is in what they said. You see it? That's the proper mindset. So now back to this email. I love this. I love it. Baptism is a frustrating topic for me. <laughs> I, I don't, anyway, because the way in which the church, the global church, not Lake Sam, deals with it sends me conflicting messages. Before I get in the crux of my issue, let me share my backstory. I was baptized in an infant through my denomination, and I was not fully immersed. I was taught that when someone is baptized, the original sin dies with them, or sin in general, as we read in Romans 1 through 8, and you are made new in the Holy Spirit. Uh. However, when I grew up and began going to other churches, I've been told that my baptism doesn't count. Oh, my gosh. For a couple of reasons. I was not fully immersed in water, and I was baptized as an infant. One church told me I could not become a member of their church because of this. Furthermore, in order to become a member, I must be rebaptized. I love the heart right here. Now, I am not a man of ceremony unless I find meaning in it. <laughs> Empty ritual is not for me, but not only that, watch where he goes. I do not do things for the sake of doing them, and I am especially weary of manufacturing a God experience, a thing that seems like God, but it really isn't. I have experienced a number of manufactured God experiences in my walk. They have led me to high highs, but their wakes have left me with my lowest moments. That's what happens when it isn't true and real, right? It always satisfies for a moment, but it ends up not being able to. Because of this, I'm cautious when I come to these sorts of things. I want my encounters with God to be real and authentic. Anybody else? Right? If I must perform a ritual to experience him, I'm still not going to do it unless I have a biblical reason. Don't just tell me what your doctrine is. Tell me where it comes from. Solo scriptura. Right? Good reformed person here. Question one, have I been baptized? Where in scripture does it say my method of baptism is wrong? I'm aware that all accounts of baptism in the Bible are through immersion, but they were also done in a river lake, which not all churches do. I'm aware that baby baptism began in the Middle Ages to make sure that babies were purged of their sin if they were to die early. So it very well could be that baby baptism isn't appropriate. However, if the two oldest denominations, Catholics and Lutherans, haven't changed it, there must be some reason why they feel it's still valid. I love that question. That's an honoring charity question, right? Don't just dismiss. Understand what they're saying and find out if there's some truth in it. Question two, multiple baptisms. I do not understand how someone can be rebaptized. If through baptism you can be made new in the Holy Spirit, then how can you be made new again? If I have the Holy Spirit, then how can I get him again? Unless it's possible to lose the Holy Spirit, in which case all of us should be rebaptized at some point and it should be standard practice in all denominations. Don't you love this? Okay? I love this congregation. Does baptism have any power? I've heard some Christians say that baptism is an outward expression of an inner truth. Then the act of baptism has no power and is not actually necessary. However, the Bible clearly says we should baptize people. By the way, If I were to take what most people feel about baptism right now, that last statement he made, the act of baptism has no power and is not actually necessary. If I really press the logic, that's where most of the people in this church would be right now. It's symbolic and it's important because God said it, and so I do it out of obedience. But give me your scriptural reason, give me your actual reason. So, there must be some reason to do it, but however the Bible clearly says we should baptize people, I love the logic, so there must be some reason to do it, and God must have some active part in the event. But again, if God is a part of it, then why would anyone do it more than once? If baptism gives you access to God through the Holy Spirit, then doing it a second time gives you nothing, because you already have it. Okay? Okay? Now, I did when you saw editing problems there, I was editing this for him, so I'm the one that made those mistakes. He didn't write them, I did them. Okay, I saw several errors in the writing there. Okay. Now, here's the questions that he's just brought up. Multiplicity of ideas about baptism. Why is there so many different ideas? Do we have to be baptized to be saved? What actually happens at baptism? Is it just symbolism? Is it just ritual? What about infant baptism? Full immersion versus sprinkling? Should being, should being baptized wrong exclude you? What experience can we expect at baptism? Is it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Now, this is not necessarily, although he, he did something, but this one I just added because it was in somebody else's. Or is it just Jesus in, in one place you got one, one place you got the other. Can I be rebaptized? okay? Now, we're going to hit these, and we're going to go, we're going to move right along, okay? This is a horribly long sermon, so don't be afraid about all those questions, okay? All right? You'll see that once, you'll see that once you start getting the idea of what baptism is, it just gives you the answer to all the rest. It starts falling out. By the way, that's called heuristic value, and what it means is whenever you actually discover the truth, it starts answering a whole bunch of questions, okay? Related and unrelated, okay? All right, now. Now, we're going to start right here with this email. I was taught that when someone is baptized, now look what he's saying. I was taught that at the moment of baptism is when you get the original sin to die, get cleansed from it, and it's also when you're made new in the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're born again and cleansed of your sin at baptism. Now, is that true? Okay, well, how can we prove that biblically? Okay, this person has asked for biblical response and how we can prove that. Well, there's a really easy way to prove it. All we've got to do is look at how the disciples got baptized. Anybody anybody tell me? They didn't. They did not get baptized. Now, there's places where they could have gotten baptized. There's something that happens to where maybe they were part of that. But the scripture never actually says the disciples were baptized. Now, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But it never says that they were baptized in water. Huh. When did they get saved then? Right? When was the moment of being forgiven sins and being regenerated as a new creature? I'm arguing always, do you have to be baptized to be saved? I'm arguing always it was in the upper room. Jesus had now died on the cross, so he had taken their sin, those disciples' sin, ours too, but those disciples' sin upon him, he had paid for it, and he had risen again, the new life, and then he came to them and he breathed on them. Now, who's breathing on them? The Holy Spirit, but God, Jesus. The very same God who breathed on a lump of clay and gave it a spiritual nature so as to make it mankind. The very same God that hovered over Mary and created the first of the new creatures inside of her. The very same God is coming to the disciples and breathing on them. So I'm arguing this is the moment at which they were made new. And notice the next words that he says. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Here's what he's talking about. You have been forgiven your sins. And that's why I can breathe on you so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. As a sinner, I can't give you the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I'd kill you. (laughs) right? If, you, if your sins haven't been paid for, the penalty for sin is death, and, and when the Holy Spirit shows up, holy being the operative word, you die. Penalty for sin is death. You're in the presence of holiness. You're gone. Toast. Boop. Gone. Remember in, in the Old Testament, they're carrying along the ark, and the, a, a religious person reached up and steadied the ark and turned to dust, okay? There's a problem here. So, he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive anyone's sins. So, I want to say right here, what we've got is, it isn't essential for you to be baptized in water for you to be saved. It just isn't. You can't justify that biblically. So, then that brings up the next question, then. Why does anybody need to be baptized at all? Right? Really, that's where we go. And that's kind of the question that we're answering from here on out. There's lots of variations and lots of iterations to it, but this is what we're going to be dealing with now. Look, do you need to be baptized? Well, here's what Jesus told us to do. This is in the section that we call, by the way, the Great Commission. What does that mean? He's commissioning you. He's telling you, go do this. And what's he tell us to do? Go and make disciples of all nations. But he doesn't quit there, does he? I mean, if if baptism wasn't important, Jesus is not in the habit of saying words that don't matter. So something about this matters. Because what he says is, is, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to deal with this one just really quickly right now. Just the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit versus Jesus. Just really simply understand. Jesus told us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus told me to do. However, in, in Acts, they'll baptize only in the name of Jesus a couple of times. And I just want to say something. Here's why I think they're doing that. Before Jesus was here, nobody knew that he was God. When he showed up, he was the hidden part of the Trinity that was now manifest. And they're making a statement when they say they baptize in the name of Jesus. They're saying he's God. See what I mean? So they're emphasizing something about Jesus in their time, which I think is important to be emphasized. I would say at this point in time, it's just as important to be emphasized, but we can bring the fullness of the Trinity into it. So I think it's not, and you'll see why later. I think, let me just put it this way. If, if you really believe that baptizing somebody in the name of Jesus only isn't a proper baptism and doesn't do what baptism's supposed to do, I would, I would call that reductionistic, Aristotelian, Western scientific thinking that is missing the point. <laughs> if somebody's getting baptized, they're getting baptized, right? And if you just happen to say the names, a little, you know, you get my point. Okay, maybe I jumped ahead too much on that. Watch this. Now let's go to Jesus. Jesus goes from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. John tries to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Now by the way, does Jesus have any sin right now? No. So why would he need to be baptized? And John's exactly right. You're the one that's sinless. I got sin, you should be baptizing me. Why are you coming to me? But Jesus said it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires or more accurately, fulfill all righteousness. Which means fulfill what it takes in order to be standing right with God. Here's what Jesus has just said. To be right with God, you should be baptized. That fulfills all righteousness. That's what he just said. So, all right? So John agreed to baptize him. All right, now, here. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Eventually be yeah. yeah, I gave you the good hint, So, but nice pick. She said, because he eventually will become sin. See, on the cross, on the cross, he's going to become sin, our sin. Not his, he's going to become our sin. There's no time to baptize him between this moment and his death. <laughs> you can't take him down for God and say, hey, just a second, take him down, baptize, and put him back up. <laughs> There's no time for him to be baptized here. See it? So what he's doing, now watch, what he's doing is, he's being baptized looking to another moment. Do you see it? So that ought to tell us that something about baptism is looking to something else. There's something about it that, that it's, it's right there in what Jesus said. And that fulfills righteousness. Fulfills what it takes to be right with God. You see it? Okay, let's keep going. Is it water that washes us clean? It's the blood, right? They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. Okay, it's his blood that washes us clean. Well, why don't we baptize in blood then? You see it? Well, first of all, because it isn't blood that washes it clean. It's Jesus that washes us clean. It's Jesus' act on the cross, specifically, that washes us clean. It's Jesus being willing to give his life where mine was the one at issue. That's what washes me clean. See? And, and what better illustration of that? If you were to be washed in blood, what would you be? Bloody. What better illustration of that than water? because what does water do we use it all the time we use it right now today we take showers i hope you took one this morning (laughs) if not i apologize to the person next to you right but but we, we wash our hands we we wash from dirt from germs think about it hebraically though hebraically they were washing remember the temple there was all this washing that's going on all the time, of the priests, of the sacrifice, all of this. Now remember, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the sacrificial system. And there's all this washing that's going on. And we look at it with Western scientific germ, germaphobe and germ ideas, and we think, oh, God told him to do that, and he made it a ritual for him to do it, but because they needed to clean the germs and the dirt off. And you know what, that's a perfectly wonderful thing to say, but it doesn't capture the fullness. Because here's what I wanna show you. Even in the everyday life of the Hebraic person, when they're getting around together and they're sitting around the dinner table, and do remember, they didn't sit around on chairs and a table. And they didn't all sit on one side of the table like you've seen in the one picture. They didn't even do what Jesus is doing right here, although it would not be impossible to do that. But you see, you see what they're doing, they're all leaning, and that puts their feet really close to other people and the food and everything else. And so when you walk into a Jewish home, In this day and age, what do they do? They wash your feet because of the dirt, but when they're washing your feet, here's what they're not doing. I'm washing your feet because they're dirty. What they're doing in their minds is they're saying, we are all dirty, and I'm cleansing you. They're not washing dirt away. They have in their mind in the action that they're washing the filth from your life. When they wash their hands, they're not doing it to wash their hands. They're doing it to wash their hands and, Hebraic, bigger understanding. It's pointing to something. They're doing it understanding that they need to be cleansed. Do you see it? So this Hebraic understanding creates a thing in their life every day to where they're thinking of water as washing. Now watch this. It's not Baptism is not just about being washed, is it? Have you forgotten that when you were joined with Jesus Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? We died and were buried with Christ by baptism. We're in him, and when he dies, we die with him. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Now, isn't that, you know, that's, it would be a bummer if what God said was, is the way I want you to do your baptisms is dig a hole and then put somebody in there and then cover them with dirt to signify dying. Dying. So what he does is he says, signify going under the water, water which cleanses, death. Jesus' death paying for what you was due you, and then coming back up again, thank God. But every year, there's only one person that doesn't come back up again, okay? Your odds are great. More people that sign up for baptism, less chance it is it's going to be you, Okay? We died and we're buried with Christ, and just as Christ is raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. By the way, somebody asked me, is the water going to be cold at Lake Washington? Actually, no, it's quite pleasant. Okay? All right. So, Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father. So, you, you catch the drift. We're, we go into the water where we're being washed. See the symbolism, the whole of this thing. Do you see it? This act captures a whole lot of meaning in one simple little down and up. Do you see it? It does a beautiful job of capturing, in a Hebraic sense, a large, wide array of things. Okay? So that's what baptism is about. Now, watch this. It's not just New Testament. In the cloud and in the sea in Moses' day, all of them were baptized. How? The Red Sea. Remember? It split apart. They went down as in death. They crossed through by God's miraculous power, Jesus Christ, saving them. And then all their enemies and all the old stuff got swallowed up by that water and died. And they came up on the other shore, separated from what their life was before. You see it? This is baptism by water. It, it, it talks about it in different place. It even talks about Noah being baptized in the water that he was being baptized in. So this is concepts that are all over. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. They go down in the Red Sea. They come up distinctly separated from what they were. They were slaves, and now they are free. See it? This is... Boy, when you start understanding Hebraic way of understanding Scripture, it gets so beautiful. When you do it in a reductionistic, Aristotelian way, I'm not saying don't be careful about your words and about your concepts. I'm saying work the heck out of it. I am German. I I love tearing things apart. I love getting down to the essence of what they are. But... I just learned that there was something bigger than the smartest German. God. He was more than I could ever get to. And so it created a humility in me to where I use every single ounce of intellect that God has given me, which is not nothing. It's not as much as some, but it's not nothing. And the fact is I use all of it in order to try and find as incomplete as I know it to be as much as I can of who God is. See it? This is, the, this is the mentality. This is the attitude. This is the interpretive context, the hermeneutics, that we want to have when we're trying to understand baptism. Now watch this. There's only two ritualistic prescriptions for Christianity. Ritualistic type prescriptions. Okay? In a certain sense, there's almost only three things he tells to Love your neighbor, you know, love God as heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as I loved you. Right, because he changes that second part to not just as you love yourself. So that's, but that's not a ritualistic prescription. That's the way we're to live life. But in the church, the Jewish church had all kinds of rituals. They had meaning and so on. In the church, there's really only two: baptism and communion. It turns out we can learn what baptism is by looking at communion. Because there's a whole lot more theology that's actually been developed about communion. What is it really? And do remember, communion's pretty controversial too, isn't it? Because you have the Catholics sitting over here saying that that that, that, that piece of bread turned into the literal flesh of Jesus and that cup literally turned into his blood. And so you cannot drop it on the floor. You have to dispose of it properly. You have to take it in. There's all kinds of prescriptions because this is the literal body now. Transubstantiation becomes that. And then you go all the way over to the right-hand side where most evangelicals are without even knowing it. It really is just symbolism to them. They, They do it out of obedience and they do it and everything else. By the way, let me say something right here. There are many people that will say, I don't think I have to be baptized because it didn't save me. Just like the letter said, right? It didn't save me. So what really is going on? And if it's just symbolism, then I don't actually have to do it. And we've already said you don't. But let me say this. Does anybody think the same thing about communion? It's just symbolism. So why do you take communion? See, people will not be baptized for lots of reasons, some of them having to do with churches they were brought up in that were wrong-headed, and so they're reacting to them. But there's lots of reasons why people can do things. And the fact is, is, I just want to say this, nobody refuses communion even though what we're doing in communion is very similar to what we're doing in baptism. Because what we're doing in communion is, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant established by my blood, the washing clean that we've been talking about. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. That's symbolism, right? I'm when I take communion, I remember what you did for me. That's how most people in this room, most evangelicals, would take communion. It just is something that helps me remember what Jesus did. Is that a complete understanding of what communion is? Is it? Watch this. Lutherans believe the sign and things signified to be locally united so that Christ is bodily present at the Lord's Supper. Here's all that means. Catholics believe in transubstantiation, where the bread and the blood, blood and the wine become flesh and, and blood. Here's what Lutherans believe. They say, well, it doesn't actually become that, it still stays bread and wine, but Christ is physically present in those elements, consubstantiation. He's physically in there. Now, technically, Lutheran isn't, Luther wasn't actually consubstantiation. Lutheranism is pretty much. But technically, Luther had an even more nuanced position, which we would call spiritual union. But it's, it was awfully close. It's not worth fighting over at this moment in time. The issue is, is that what they're saying is, is that the body is present in that. Now, you can say this. Well, Luther was brought up a Catholic, and, you know, when it came time to you know, uh, move on and be reformed, be a protestant. Remember, Protestant means protest. We protested against what was, and so we became our own thing. When he did that, maybe he dragged over some Catholic understanding about the elements. And so maybe the way that most evangelicals are these days, where it's just simple, maybe that's more accurate. And Luther just kind of was hung up in some baggage that he was carrying. You see that? I'm going to hopefully put that to bed so that you never think that again right now. Reformed Christians believe that the sign and the thing signified to be inseparable, but to be united spiritually rather than locally or bodily. Now, this is Reformed Christians, and you stand in the Reformed tradition here. We're not Calvinists, and technically that would mean Calvinist, but but I want you to see something. The sign and the thing signified are inseparable. What does that mean? I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that it's just a sign. So reformed tradition, which again, you could say maybe it's carrying baggage from Catholicism, but reformed tradition doesn't even understand it to be two totally separated things, the sign and the signified, distinct. What is a better way maybe to think about this? Try this one on, pneumatic or real spiritual presence. Now, pneumatic is just Greek for spiritual, Okay. This view doesn't try to explain in physical terms how the Holy Spirit makes Christ's presence. It's not trans and or consubstantiation or anything else. It doesn't even, it goes, it, it says, it's not, the, the bread doesn't become flesh and the wine doesn't become blood. And You know, <laughs> lay that all aside because you're missing the point. Do we do this in theology sometimes? Do we make a mountain out of a molehill? Do we take a thing literally? That God intended to be much more than just literal? I'm not ever saying that when God is saying something literally, it's not true. I'm just saying he means it to be much more than just that. And do we ever miss the point? So watch what these people do with this. And I'm not saying I'm fully this because there's some issues there too. But watch this. What this real spiritual presence means, it says communion is not just symbolism. Why? The understanding is often called receptionism for it says that we are being given something of real substance essence. We're being given something of a transcendent nature into our physical lives and our spiritual lives. We're being given something of a real essence at the moment that we take communion or are baptized that is not as actual body and blood but it's everything that they point to in me. Now, let me say it another way. You can only receive this if you actually have faith in Christ and all he's done for you. Think about this for a second. If you take communion, and you don't actually believe in God, but you're doing it so that you don't go to hell, did your communion do anything for you? If you get baptized because you wanna go partying but you're afraid of going to hell because you might die that night. If you're doing it as a ritual, does the ritual do anything for you? Absolutely not. Well then what does do something for you? Faith. This is our access to things not seen. Things that have substance that is not evident. That's what Hebrews says. What we're doing in faith is we're understanding this is important. This isn't just symbol where we can kind of do it casually. This is an important moment. There's something happening in the heavenlies that is of real essence and real moment, and I need to be receiving that. Let me say it another way. I don't just do this in remembrance of what he did. I do it to receive, now watch this wording, afresh what he's done, so that I can re-enter into it afresh. When you take communion, why do you take it every week when we offer it? Why do you do that? Is it just simple? Truthfully, it is. That's how we think about it. I'm hoping you'll never take communion the same way again from here on out. I'm hoping the next time you take communion, you will consider something. Anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Do you do that? Do we do that? For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring, respecting, understanding the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment among yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have died. Taking communion wrong can kill you? <laughs> do you have you ever taken a communion in your life thinking, if I do this wrong, God might kill me? <laughs> right? But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Look, you can get... You can still believe it, it's just symbol and you can still explain that scripture. But I think it gets pretty hard to explain why God's killing people. It just gets difficult. It's not impossible to say, I want you to know this theologically, it's not impossible to think of it as just a symbol and still understand that it's dishonoring. But I just want you to open your hearts up to a Hebraic way of understanding it that would say something along this. I'm not trying to turn it back into Catholicism and back into mystical and things changing elements and so on. Here's what I am trying to say. If you're encountering the Lord without faith, be careful. If you're encountering the Lord in a casual manner, not understanding the seriousness of Christ on the cross, don't think that you'll escape Christ on the cross. Don't think that that means nothing. And in fact, let me argue with you to go the next step, too. When you're taking communion the next time, I want you to think about the fact that what God is doing is He is, once you're in remembrance of Him, you are accessing, you are, you are understanding, you are asking the Lord to once again bring to you what it meant that He gave His body for me and that he spilled his blood for me. And when I do that, understand that in my spirit, something is happening. We've been talking about praying in the spirit quite a bit lately. Think about what that means. When you praying in the spirit, you edify yourself. How? You can't tell me how you edify yourself. What I can tell you is the scripture tells me that you do. It does build you up. I'm telling you, the reason why we take communion every week is because taking it every month didn't seem like enough. He said, when you assemble together, do these things. One of which was take communion. So when we're assembled together, we do this. And I need us to do it not as Mere symbol, I don't need us to do it. I would ask you to consider not doing it as mere symbol, but as understanding a reception. There's a faith you are accessing in faith. The most important thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind. And that it calls for you to examine yourself. It doesn't mean he won't forgive you. It just means ask for forgiveness. Understand where you need it. Understand why you need him. Understand that you need him to come and to do this sacrifice again. It's not just on that one moment where you got saved. It's all these other moments. You know, the ones since the last communion you took. Think about it. Catholic confession is confessional, which I do not believe in. But it's this impulse. It's trying to capture this idea. The sins that we commit are not just before we know Christ. There are things that we do after. You see it? And there's a need now. I'm asking God to come and to do a work of healing in me. I am receiving it in faith. I'm activating it in faith. I'm making it real in my life again at another level in faith. Do you see it? Is this witnessing to you? I want to be really careful that we wouldn't somehow end up in some unbiblical ritualistic sense again. Okay, I'm, I did not grow up Christian and the whole, every Christian ritual is very, very troublesome to me because I don't get it, because I don't have it in my history. I don't have warm memories of certain things or, as so many people have, bad memories of certain things. Okay, I want to know, just like the person in the, in the email said, I want to know what this is about, and why this is about it, so that I can enter into it in the most fullness that I can. And I believe that in this sermon, because of your questions... The Lord has given me something that he wants me to give to you. And that is that maybe we don't take communion in the fullness that we ought to be taking it. Maybe there's another way of accessing it by faith that is important and will actually make a real difference in our lives if we will start doing this in this way. You see it? The Holy Spirit doing something in us spiritually. The heavenlies being able to hear the proclamation too. We got it? Now, if all that's true, everything I just said about communion is true about baptism. What if it's not just a symbol going under, coming up, being washed, symbol of something else? What if it's it's receiving in faith this thing that God has done? Not ritual. Do you understand how Jesus talks about ritual? When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. Think their prayers are answered, merely repeating their words again and again. You think about that. You, we don't have too much of that in the Western world, but we do have movies where people say incantations. And if you say just these words right, the power is in the words. Jesus is saying that's stupid. That's nonsense. If it has any power, it's because you gave it. Right? And in your lack of understanding, in your ignorance, you gave power to something. It wasn't the words said in just the right way. That's just stupid. What he's saying is access the real thing. It goes on to say, your father knows everything you need, and so what's he telling you to do? Just talk to him. <laughs> don't say, oh, God, Hail Mary, Mother of Grace, hell, Mary, Mother of Grace, hell, Mar- sorry, don't do that. God, I need help. I didn't get forgiven because I did so many Hail Marys. I get forgiven because I went to the Lord who saves and I asked him to help me. I repented of my sin. I asked him to heal me. I asked him to cleanse me yet again. I asked him to show me how to never do that again, how to get past that in a real way. By the way, two weeks ago, Memorial Day, I preached a sermon on how to get past your sin and I talked about praying in the spirit as a way of doing that. And can I tell you right now, if you did not hear that sermon, I'm asking you to go back and listen to it and I've never done so more strongly. Because I'm telling you this is the most important tool in anybody's book about how to get over besetting sin. When you're in the middle of the temptation, start praying in the Spirit and watch what happens. I'm not going to make it out to be a formula that doesn't have some way of Satan getting around it and you getting around it. But the bottom line is this will give you more ability to overcome than anything I've ever seen. So I'm just saying it was unfortunate I did it on Memorial Day, but there it goes. Okay? In a certain sense, it's almost better that you would listen to it and then mark it or download it and listen to it every year. It's one of those that's going to make that kind of difference. I'm not puffing myself up because I'm not the one that did it. Okay. Having said that, it's not ritual. If you do a thing ritualistically, it means nothing. In fact, we just learned in communion it means less than nothing. It's actually going to be harmful to you. Okay. But look at this one too. When you get baptized, are you expecting something to happen to you? Because half the people that wrote in had these incredibly beautiful, wonderful stories about what happened to them when they came up out of the water. That is so awesome. Can I tell you? I did not. And the other half of the people did not. Now, I think that the people that had something happen to them are better off than me. But God says something about people that experience him that way. To Thomas, he says, put your finger here and look at my hands. This is after he's risen again. Thomas was not there. He didn't believe that it was the Lord. He shows up again. Here, Thomas, put your finger in my hand. Put your hand in the wound in my sides, on this side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas explained. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen. Better off are those who believe without seeing me. What is believing without seeing me called? What's the other word for it? Here's what he's saying. It's better that you should access me by faith than by me touching you. So when you get baptized, don't expect something. If something does happen, praise God. Fine, that's wonderful. It doesn't make it less than the other thing in a sense as long as you keep it about faith. See what I mean? If something happens, great. But if nothing happens, you're accessing the most beautiful thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind. God making you new. You who had no ability to overcome on your own, God did it by making you new. In faith, access that. You've got everything and more that you need for that moment. You see it? Now, if you're just doing it ritualistically, you don't have any of that. If you're accessing it by faith, you have all of that. Let's go to another one. What about infant baptism, just really quick? What about infant baptism? Well, what have we, what have we been saying? What is this really about? Faith. Can an infant that's never made a choice right or wrong make a choice now if you're a calvinist tulip yes babies that are born are going to hell if something happens to stop them from going to hell that's what happens can i just say something i really love john calvin i really love john calvin but his logic has screwed us so many different ways it's ridiculous sorry his logic makes God out at some, pers- at some points of time to be so cruel. The Bible tells us that God is love. It's very difficult to find the love in much of what Calvinism comes up to in logic. Now Understand, when Calvinism talks about complete ordination, when it talks about total sovereignty, it is absolutely true. It's just also true that we have free will. And it's in the dynamic of the two of those that we find a very different reality than what Calvinism comes up with by using his logic in a good German way down to a point that I think is Aristotelian and makes a mistake. It loses its humility. It loses the bigger picture. It gets the forest, it gets the tree, but misses the forest. And I want to say something about infant baptism. Do I believe? if, If somebody comes to me and they say, I want my child to be infant baptized, here's what I say to them. Do you understand that that is not going to save your child? Do you understand theologically that the reason why your child is saved is because they're under your covering? It's your covering. God looks to you when he's a child before the age of accountability. Now, we all know that age of accountability is 13, 14, somewhere in there, but children at 2 or 3 can exhibit some very ungodly behavior. You still cover them. You still cover them, and then there comes a point at which God is saying it's not on them anymore, right? What's his name? As he crosses before Moses, he talks about you know covering the iniquity and da da da. But he says, "But I won't do this." It's each person; their sin is their own. And so the bottom line is, is if if you if you if somebody comes to me and they say, "I'm afraid my baby is going to go to hell if they don't get baptized." I just want to say, I really would try and talk about it about theology, but here's what I do in the end. Paul says, meat sacrifice to idols is nothing. But if in their conscience it's a sin, then it's a sin. If somebody comes to me and says, I really want my baby to be infant baptized, I'm going to try and explain to them the theology, but in the end, what am I going to do? I'm going to infant baptize them. That's what they wanted in their heart. They're asking for something of the Lord. They may be asking wrongly. Guess what? So do I. All the time, thinking I'm right and and actually being wrong. Thank God for his grace that he covers our misunderstanding about things. So yes, I do my best to try and have them to understand why we dedicate and not do infant baptisms and so on. But the bottom line is, if that's something that they feel is really important to them, I'm going to meet them where they are. Because what they're trying to do is get with God and have their child be with God. And that seems like a good idea to me. Right? So I'm not going to say that, but I would say this. If you've been infant baptized... There's a point in time at which I think you're going to want to be baptized of your own free will. Thank God for the infant baptism and the family that felt that was important for you, to bring you up in the ways of Christ. That is going to benefit you enormously. But there's going to come a time at which you're going to want to make this choice between you and the Lord yourself in faith. Which brings us to the next one, which is, well, then can I be rebaptized? See, technically, you want to get really Aristotelian on me, there is one baptism. Well, by the way, that was talking about one baptism for Christianity. That wasn't talking about just being baptized once. But you don't have any biblical evidence of somebody being rebaptized. Okay? You do not have to be rebaptized. But can I just say something? If you're 18 years old, and in the faith that you have and the understanding you have at 18 years old, you go to the Lord and you make a real decision in the Lord to be baptized to give your life to him, to have him cleanse you, to have him born you again, to recognize all these things by faith to appropriate that which is true in your life, and to make that your life, to do a public... By the way, I think this is one of the most important things about baptism. You're making a proclamation not just to the world, which is why we like to do it publicly, which is the park, but you're also making a proclamation to the heavenlies. In the spiritual realm, you're making a proclamation, I am his... He's my covering. He's my seal. See it? But now, if at 18 you do this, can anybody say that they're the same person at 28 as they were at 18? Anybody? How about when you're 38 to 18? How about when you're 48? How about when you're 58 years old? What do you know now? Your baptism is an entirely different moment for you at that point, isn't it? Isn't it coming? Look, has anybody in here ever done a renewal of their marriage vows? Raise your hands if you have. Has anybody ever done that? Wow, it's surprising to not see any hands go up. But, but here's what I want to say. You know you're not getting remarried again. <laughs> you didn't get divorced on Friday so you could be remarried again on Saturday. <laughs> right? But what's wrong with, what's wrong with renewing your vows? Nothing. It's awesome. You know what? We've lived a little while. We were really in love, that kind of honeymoon love that was pretty blind. And now, 30 years later, we're not so blind. <laughs> Thank God, still a little bit. But you know what? I'd love, to, I'd love to recommit, renew my vows with you. You think God's standing up saying, just, 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 you are only supposed to get married once. It's the sacrament, only one time. He's saying that's awesome that you're renewing your vows. I want to say something. When you go for rebaptism, if you made it out to be some ritual to get you rebaptized every year so that maybe you'll actually be saved, then you're missing the point, right? That becomes ritualistic. But if you're somebody who said enough water has gone under the bridge that I have genuinely become a different person and I need to appropriate this incredible truth in a new way because of the decisions I've made, both for and against him, I need to come to the Lord in a fresh way and say, God, I made a decision back then to give my life to you wholly. I'm continuing that. I'm renewing that. I'm giving myself to you yet again. Does anybody think that God's up there saying, man, I wish you understood theology. (laughs) Do you see it? -baptism, Baptism is a thing of faith. It's a thing of heart. If you're coming before the Lord and you're saying, I want to get back to first love. I want to get back to the fullness of what Christ Jesus has done for me. Particularly because of what I've learned. And I want to renew my vows to you. I want to renew this thing in me in a way that is meaningful. That makes a difference in the heavenlies and in me. Not that that act will change you but when you appropriate that act in faith it changes you when you receive it you see it so can you get rebaptized that's why i do it i believe strongly in it because i believe in doing everything that you possibly can to continue to turn your life over to him more and more and more and more i do not see christianity as a one moment shot I see Christianity as a walk, step by step, through every single day, through every single year, throughout the whole. So how would we do? Multiplicity of ideas? We covered it. Do we have to be baptized to be saved? No. What actually happens at baptism? That's the whole point of the message. Is it just symbolism? No. Is it just ritual? No. Infant baptism? Yeah, but... Full immersion versus sprinkling, it's faith. It's not the instrument. It's faith. If they sprinkle, who cares? Immersion, I like it better. Should be being baptized wrong, exclude you? This is the one that irks me, and this is the reason why I use that email. When we get to the point where we're taking something like baptism and we're discluding people, that's directly against the Jesus Christ who prayed for us all to become one. You are violating what God is trying to do with us. What experience can we expect at baptism? None. Appropriate it by faith. Something happens, great. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or just Jesus? Did that? Can I be rebaptized? So, how do we do? So, right now, in your packets, in front of you, that. Baptism, I want to be baptized. Your name, your email, a contact phone. And if you want to check it off, you don't have to. But if you want to check it off, this is to renew my m- commitment. Been baptized before, this is just to renew my commitment. Fill it out. Pass it in, in two seconds, when we take the offering. Because right now, we're going to take Communion. But I'm giving you a moment right now to pick up that card. And if you think that the Lord is moving upon you to do this, fill this card out because this card is taking a little step. The Lord moved on your heart. Don't let it go away. I've told you at the beginning, I think the Lord wants to do something with us. I think he wants us to enter into things in a new way. So with that in mind, fill it out. When the offering comes, please put it in the tray. Help me remember that, would you please? Okay and now what we're going to do is just reach down and pick up those two cups that are in front of you,